Welcome, everybody, to the Kona Shame Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andy Rourke. Guys, I am here today with one of my good friends, Dr. Addie Reinhardt. Uh, for those of you who do not know her, she is a veterinary well-being researcher. She is the founder and CEO of Mentor Vet. She is a awesome, enthusiastic speaker, uh, presenter, thought leader. She is someone who you are going to hear about in the coming years and decades in vet medicine because she just brings such passion and enthusiasm and she's doing such cool stuff. I'm, I'm super fanboy over Dr. Reinhardt. She is just phenomenal. You, uh, you'll hear, you'll hear why I'm such a big fan on this podcast. She is here talking about brand new research. It's the Merck Animal Health Veterinary Wellbeing Study. Uh, she presented this at uh, VMX conference, which is where I uh, I got to become aware of it. And uh, man, this is not just research on uh, on stress and burnout. This is research on what do we do about it and how does the staff feel it and why and how is the staff different than the doctors and what do we do about that and what are the role of the individual doctors and what are the role of the practices and what are the role of the individual staff members as far as actually fixing some of these problems so if you're ready to get a little bit more insight and then some actual real um thoughts on what steps we as a profession can take to start making this problem better guys this is the podcast for you let's get into it this is your show we're glad you're here we want to help you in your veterinary career Welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Addie Reinhardt. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. So excited to join. It's my pleasure. You are uh, a shooting up star. Like you're like not a, like a shooting star sounds like someone who's falling, but you're like the opposite. <laughs> you're like a launching star, like <laughs> like Magellan, like we're like going into space. Uh, you. <laughs> I just I just met you like a year ago and you are doing the most amazing things. And I'm not kidding. I, I'm, I'm kidding uh, about Magellan. But uh, otherwise, <laughs> I'm 100 percent serious about your meteoric rise and you're doing freaking amazing stuff. So I met you through the company that you are the CEO and founder of, which is Mentor Vet. Uh, you are leaning heavy into uh, a research based approach into mentorship and wellness, mental health wellness in uh, veterinary medicine. And you were doing really good work. And um, you and I talked a couple times on the phone and then I got to meet you in person at VMX. I'm so impressed with you and so uh, such a big fan and supporter of, of what you're doing. And so I am really thrilled to be able to have you here to talk about some research that you were actually presenting at VMX. Yeah. So it, it, yeah. One, thank you for inviting me. Um, and it's been great to, to connect. And um, yeah, I, I think it's uh, been a, an amazing journey to get here. I feel like where I was a year ago, um, I was actually in grad school still one year ago and I hadn't even started MentorVet. I mean, we had piloted MentorVet, but uh, really just the transformation in one year has been really incredible to see uh, just how far that we've come. So so yes, uh, we presented the data from the well-being study at VMX, um, which is super exciting. We have a lot of uh, exciting new data to share with yeah. the community. I was uh, so I was looking at. It. So this is the Merck Animal Health Veterinary Wellbeing Study uh, that came out just this year is for 2022. It was done in September, October 2021. And um, I Merck just pause for a second. Um, they their well-being studies. They've this is I think the third one that they've put out. They have been very 
good and very insightful and very useful for sort of actionable steps as we look at our profession and be like, hey, what's working? What's not working? So they so just props to Merck uh, for for supporting this, because honestly, like, you know, I don't know exactly what their return on investment on a on a study like this is compared to, you know, selling uh, selling products. Uh, I I feel like it's just a good thing that they are doing and have done. And so I just want to stop for a second and say thanks to those guys for investing into the well-being of our profession. That was uh, really an awesome thing. Yeah, yeah, they've they've been they've been in the well-being space. I say this, they've, they're, they've been in the well-being space before it was cool. So they've actually been doing these studies for, uh, this is the third study that they've done of the well-being study. And so I feel like in the last year or two, there's really been a drive for more well-being initiatives, but they, they, they've been doing this before ever, anybody else was doing it. And I think that I'm very grateful for them for that, not only that research, but they also support MentorVet in a big way. Uh, so they're really backing a lot of other well-being initiatives that are uh, evidence-based and really making an impact on the profession. So yeah, they're, they're very aligned with sustainability of the veterinarian in the profession because without veterinarians, who's going to sell the product? So I think they they recognize how important the vets are in, in this entire picture of our veterinary industry. We have to keep our vets healthy and well uh, so that we can continue in the good work that we're doing in the communities. Yeah. I, I, one of the things I like, I like a lot about this particular study too, is they, um, they dig a lot into the support staff. And so, uh, I just, I love that it's a more of a holistic view on the practice, I think. So anyway, that let's, let's get into this. Cause honestly, I, I was looking at this, I didn't get a chance to come to the talk at VMX and I was like, ah, I know what I'll do. I'll get Addy to come here <laughs> and just give me the information directly. And uh, it's more convenient in my schedule. That that's that's, that's the arrogant thought that I you get had. a private a private I, viewing of that, the well being stuff. That's what I wanted. <laughs> I was like, break this down for me. I don't have time to go to the VMX presentation. Yeah. I want a private viewing of this presentation. I know. I lead. I'm, I lead a charmed life. Let's <laughs> okay. So, well being study. Um, what is new? What did? What are high level takeaways? Let's just get started and, and crack this thing open. So, so break down the study a little bit. Uh, how did it go? What was it? And then, uh, and then you and I will start to dig into some findings, and then we're going to get into some uh, recommended action steps after that. Okay. Yep. So I think big picture, uh, not a huge surprise, but as far as uh, psychological distress, we're in a worse place as we were two years ago. So there's. Um, a higher rate of serious psychological distress among veterinarians. And we think that um, a lot of this might be related to uh, pandemic stressors. Um, we also know, interestingly, burnout has not increased since the two years ago. And well-being has actually stayed pretty consistent as well. Um, we know also that the burnout rate among veterinarians is actually not... Um, uh, sorry, the well-being rate among veterinarians is actually not uh, significantly different than the general population. So well-being in general seems to be, average well-being seems to be consistent for veterinarians in the general population, but the level of serious psychological distress is the concern. And I think when we break it down too by age, uh, the levels of serious psychological distress or burnout or poor well-being tends to be much worse in the earlier career for younger veterinarians um, is, is really what we're seeing. I think that uh, kind of new for, for this study is that when we're looking at essentially concerns and what vets are concerned about, um, really consistent from previous waves of the study that 
vets are concerned about the stress levels of vets and the staff. They're concerned about the high student debt. Mm. Um, they're concerned about the suicide rate. But kind of new for this phase is the they're concerned about uh, perceived shortage of veterinarians. So yeah. there's um, definitely a lot of uh, more concern. I think they're just, I'm sure, just with workflow inefficiencies, um, people are really starting to see some strain and stressors with that. Um, and then you, you mentioned kind of the the support staff side of things. So yeah, we got some some data, which I'm really excited about because I feel like there's not been a lot of survey research done on veterinary support staff. And right. so we kind of knew that maybe they were having issues as well. There was a few studies here and there. A recent study showed that the suicide rate of veterinary technicians may be even higher uh, than veterinarians. And so there, there's definitely been some concern there. But we did find actually that the mental health and well-being of our support staff does seem to be worse than veterinarians, okay. which is also... Um, pretty concerning. Uh, and I think there's there's also a concern about the shortage of qualified support staff as well, um, in addition to the shortage of veterinarians too. So I think those are kind of some of the big takeaways from the research. But essentially, uh, you know, a big part of doing this research is, is to track trends over time. To, so doing a temperature check of the profession every two years to see where we're at. And it does appear, at least when we're looking at serious psychological distress, that things have gotten worse um, since two years ago, which is, is concerning to okay. me. All right. So that's, a, there's a lot to unpack Eddie. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a lot. Um, all right. I need to step back for a second. Yeah. Let's, def let's define some terms because okay. there's, there's important nuance here. So yeah. talk to me a little bit about, uh, serious psychological stress or psychological stress, as you put it, uh, mm -hmm. burnout and well-being as three okay. distinct states. So while serious psychological stress is going up our well-being seems to be staying the same and I, I help me break it down enough for me so that I can, I can understand the terms so I can see how those things can be, uh, true at the same time. Yes, uh, love it. Thank you for that. I think when you're so ingrained in this research, sometimes these terms uh, are very, you know, just uh, used commonly and people might not understand the distinction. So I, I appreciate um, the, the question. So essentially, when we're looking at well-being, that is levels of happiness. So well-being yeah. is not the absence of mental illness. You can have, you know, no mental illness and still have poor well-being. So essentially, it's it's your your level of happiness um, in life and how your life satisfaction or work satisfaction or overall satisfaction with with your life as a whole. Okay. So that's well-being. And then we have psychological distress, or we, we use a, a scale called the Kessler Six to measure serious psychological distress, and that's really gauging mental health and mental health conditions. And so it asks six questions. Some of the questions might be related to, you know, how often in the last month have you been feeling hopeless or um, anxious or stressed, uh, things like that. So it really tracks more of your your mental health. And then the third is burnout. And so we know burnout is a work-related condition. And this Burnout is essentially a psychological syndrome that emerges when you have prolonged stress on the job. You're not co coping with it in a healthy way. And the main three symptoms of burnout are cynicism, exhaustion, and lack of professional efficacy or feeling like the work that you're doing isn't making any impact. So there are three very distinct things. Uh, and they, they measure each of these scales that we um, 
asked essentially measure three very different things. So you can have, you know, worse serious psychological distress, but well-being could be okay, right? Um, so, so I think that that that's kind of the distinction there. Okay. All right. That makes sense. So jumping back, tell me the story uh, about how well-being and, and psychological stress interfaces for the veterinarian. So sort of, I guess when you say well-being doesn't seem like it's changed, but psychological stress has changed. What does that, what does that mean in layman's terms as, as far as like, what is the experience of veterinarians when we're seeing these, these intersection of burnout, psychological stress, and, and then maintaining well-being? Yeah. So I think that just tells us that perhaps individuals are having more mental health or a higher proportion of individuals are having mental health challenges right now, but the overall level of happiness in the profession hasn't really changed in the past two years. Gotcha. Um, okay. So, so I think that's kind of how I would break that down. Right. If that, that, makes sense. that definitely makes sense. Let's talk a, a little bit about, um, you know, we talked about the last two years specifically, and, you know, these are these are exceptional times, and there's a global pandemic, and, and we saw all the things that come with that, and uh, people picking up curbside, and clients not wanting to wear masks, or uh, worrying about the staff being sick, and having staff being out because someone got COVID, and now the staff the staff is, uh, is, is contact tracing and things like that. I mean, these were really strange times. Can you, can you unpack a little bit more? what exactly the the impacts of covid were on the mental health of this of the doctors and staff and kind of how does that manifest yeah so we essentially asked several questions about the impact of the covid-19 pandemic on both the team as well as veterinarians and some of the most pressing issues that were experienced uh, were some of the things that you mentioned so uh, the practice being short-staffed uh, due to individuals being away for illness um, or family care. Um, the job just increased the exposure to COVID-19. Uh, people were working longer hours. Many people did report working longer hours during the pandemic. Um, so I think that, you know, being that short-staffed part of this, I think that was a, a huge driver in some of the challenges that our veterinarians were facing as far as, you know, looking at the impact of this on, on our vets. Tell me, um, tell me a little bit about how the staff experience is different from the veterinarian experience. Mm, ooh, that's good. Um, I think that in general, what we saw at least from the data is that the clinic staff were more impacted by being shorthanded than the veterinarians were, okay. um, at least looking at the the um, kind of percentage of um, vets who felt like they you know, faced a barrier because of being shorthanded. But a lot of the staff, I, I think, faced more challenges. And oftentimes these individuals are on the front lines being the first contact for owners at times everybody's on edge right now, right? So there's likely a lot more conflict happening. Um, there's likely a lot more, uh, they're, they're getting a lot more of that, I think, than, than some of the veterinarians um, are potentially. Um, and, and yeah, I think just having a shortage of veterinary support staff in general makes it really hard for the support staff that they, um, that are currently working. So uh, you know, I, I don't know too many of the other differences that we saw, but that was the main one is that the staff were a little bit more impacted by the shortages than the veterinarians were. Okay. Is there insight into um, 
into retention inside the profession as far as, you know, do we think that these sort of shifts that we're seeing are going to lead to a higher number of uh, doctors or support staff leaving in the coming years? So as far as retention goes, the there was very little concern that we would have retention issues in the next two years, at least for the veterinarian side of things. So most of the uh, veterinarians actually answered that they were unlikely or very unlikely to leave the profession in the next two years. So, you know, kind of looking at um, the veterinarians who are under the age of 55, uh, around 75% of them said very unlikely or unlikely to be leaving the profession in the next two years. So I don't think we're horribly concerned about a mass exodus, at least from this data, these data. But uh, I think with the short, the shortage of the support staff, so a lot more support staff said that they would be leaving the profession in the next two years. So I think there are more concerns about retention for our support staff. And that's definitely, I think, an area that we probably need to focus on a bit more. Um, I think that uh, definitely our, our, I think it nearly a third of vet staff were likely to leave the practice in the next two years. Mm. So definitely much more of a concern, um, and, and on that side of things. Yeah, that's brutal. Um, can you, can you talk, I'm going to come back, I'm going to come back to, to kind of where do we go from here? What do we do about that? But, but can you unpack a little bit of, of demographic differences? So I'm talking about, uh, types of practice and then also, um, ages or time in the profession, because that seemed to have a significant impact. Yeah. So in general, when we're looking at, um, most of these data in general, younger veterinarians are, are typically going to be at, more at risk for serious psychological distress, for burnout, uh, for, you know, lower well-being as compared to uh, older veterinarians. So I think age has a huge factor in this. So when we're looking at um, particularly burnout, uh, around 75% of vets under the age of 35 were moderately or severely burnt out that's, based on this survey. That's abysmal. That's a lot. Yeah. Only a quarter of vets, of early career vets, were feeling low levels of burnout. Yeah. So yeah, that's, so that's a concern because uh, I think when you look later in the career, so it, it just, it tends to slowly improve over time. Uh, and so I think a little over around 60% of vets over uh, the age of 35 were in that range. So still a lot is yeah right around 60 percent uh vets are feeling moderate to severe burnout right now even in the um in the older age groups so I, I, that that's a concern to me i mean we know burnout is an issue in the general population as well so i don't think it's unique to veterinary yeah. medicine but it still is a problem that we need to address right um so so that's that's very concerning to me is especially when we're looking at interventions or what we can do about it uh, definitely our our early career vets are a huge focus. And for, for a lot of the work that I do, a, a big focus is how can we reduce burnout and make this career more enjoyable? Because the vets aren't going to leave. They said they're not going to leave the profession in the next right. two years, but they're so, so incredibly burnt out. So how can we make it to where they're not so upset and feeling trapped? Because uh, I think that's where you get into trouble when somebody feels like, 
they're trapped in the career. They, yeah. you know, they're not going to leave in two years, but they're so incredibly burnt out. And when you're incredibly burnt out, you feel like quitting the career. So to me, that suggests perhaps, you know, these individuals might feel, you know, just overwhelmed, trapped um, by the work that they're doing. And um, as far as the the other, you know, the practice groups, we definitely see in general companion animal veterinarians having lower, worse mental health and the equine and food animal veterinarians, at least from this study, had better mental health. Um, so I think that, you know, that's interesting to me, mm-hmm. but, but I, <laughs> there's stressors in every industry. And I, I, I sometimes wonder, and this is kind of a side and aside from the, the study, you know, speaking from a personal viewpoint, um, I wonder sometimes, you know, the impact, especially when we're looking at food animal versus companion animal, how much of the stressors that our veterinarians are experiencing are related to access to care issues and these ethical dilemmas and um, having, you know, providing care given limited client finances. And, uh, you know, that's something that food animal practitioners don't don't really have to, they, they have their own ethical issues, but a lot of our companion animal veterinarians are dealing with these kinds of situations, you know, almost every day. And, you know, when you've been taught one way, and this is the gold standard way and kind of this, um, you know, best care, or you're not doing the best that you could do. There's, I think, a lot of guilt and moral stress there when you're not able to provide the care that you think you should. So I, I, I do think when I look at at least the distinction between kind of companion animal and food animal, that that's one factor that I think plays a part in this, at least. Hey, guys, I just want to jump in here with a couple quick updates. If you haven't checked them out yet, you got to check out uh, the cool gift that we got from our friends at Banfield, the Pet Hospital. They have uh, decided to support us in putting out transcripts of the Kona Shame podcast and also the Uncharted Veterinary podcast. This is uh, in it's they're supporting us in uh, improving accessibility and inclusivity in vet medicine. It is something that Banfield feels strong about, and they actually have stepped up and leaned in to make this possible. We could not do it without him. I am so proud to be able to do this. But uh, yeah, head over to the drandyrourke.com website. Uh, you can click in the show notes and you can find the link tree. Uh, it'll take you there as well. But uh, for all of our episodes, we have transcripts. So spread the word. Uh, check them out. Uh, use them how how you need to however they'll be helpful to get the word out about the work that we're doing on the podcast i just have to say thanks so much to banfield over on the uncharted veterinary podcast speaking of which we have a brand new episode came out yesterday it's about being the newly promoted manager and being friends with the people that you used to work shoulder to shoulder with um we had someone who was like hey (laughs) they went out for drinks and i didn't get invited because i'm the manager now and this really hurts my feelings Uh, yeah that'll happen stephanie goss and i break it down we talk all about how to navigate that what that's like what that emotional process is maybe where your head should be some of the pitfalls that people fall into when they go through this transition transition of going from working with people to going to being the manager of people if that sounds like you if that sounds interesting check out uh the uncharted podcast wherever you get your podcast there's also a link in the show notes guys that's enough of that let's get back into this episode I um I saw some research not long ago that talks about the mental health benefits of being outside. Oh yeah, and 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 mm-hmm. I, I again it, that seems so super so super simple, 
But I do wonder about, you know, is it, is, is that a piece of it as well? It's just, okay. I, I mean, really, it's like when you think about just, just think about the workplace, right? So, so there's sort of this Buddhist idea that the environment that you're in deeply affects your, your thinking and your experience. And I, I think that that's true. When I sit in a messy, cluttered office, I feel uh, kind of anxious and crappy. And when it's nice and clean, I feel like my life is in control. And so I, I think about the difference in working in, a, in an exam room uh, all day long. And then also being being outside, going going to a farm, going to a production area, things like that. It is part of it. And the, the other part of it, I actually wonder, and again, this may be absolutely nothing, but um, the travel time, you know, if you're, a, if you're a large animal person or you're going between places, having those little breaks in the middle of mm -hmm. the day of act, and actually changing environment. I, again, I, I, this is, Com complete hypotheses just on, on on my part but um but anyway I, I think about that and i the the idea of the economics are different and there's a different economic structure i think that makes i think that makes a ton of sense and i think that that's maybe more i'm like it's truck time and you're like no it's the economics of the i'm like no i think it's the trucks it's the trucks. I think. I mean, the the. I, I do agree with you though, and just talking with a lot of my mentees in the program, at least some of the vets who do kind of farm calls, they get a little bit more break, yeah. you know, in between, and they get time, more time to process, and they have more time to think about cases in between, and you know, it, not saying that it's still not really stressful, and sure. um, you know, they're working a ton of hours. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think when you're going, and this is coming from a companion animal practitioner. Yeah, totally. We, we are two dog and cat vets <laughs> being like, I don't know what they're experiencing. Like, I don't know. I don't I think know. It's, yeah. I think it's because they wear boots. There's, there's most certainly, I think, stressors in both. And it's really interesting because I've done a lot of my own research on um, kind of the stressors in the early career and why do we see these higher rates of stress and uh, poor mental health, specifically in the early career. And it's really interesting because when I've talked with, you know, vets in small animal or um, food animal, like swine or equine, the interesting thing is the stressors, they are all essentially the same, but the the context is slightly different. But the heart of it, the heart of the stressors, like conflict, like ethics, like issues around leadership, all of these things are very similar. And so it, it's it's really interesting because when I, you know, educate a lot of the early career vets on, you know, how to cope with some of these stressors that they're experiencing, in general, the curriculum is pretty consistent across the board for, you know, a food animal vet, an equine vet, or a small animal vet, but the case examples that I provide are just different and tailored to that um, aspect of the career. So it, it is really interesting to think. And, and I think part of going forward with this issue is all of us, as far as any walk of, of, of life in veterinary medicine, are having these similar shared challenges. And so if we can come together, uh, instead of saying they have it worse, or oh, we yeah. have it worse, you know, we're all facing really similar challenges. And I think coming together and, and working on these, um, you know, a, as a shared community will be good going forward. Oh yeah, the the suffering Olympics are something that we yeah. do not want to participate in. No, and we need to stop. No, so, uh, no I, I agree with that. hundred percent. I only look at that to say, well, if there's a group that seems less burned out than another group, we should look at what they're doing and try to yeah. parse that out and say, what what are what are what are they doing, and, and how do we bring that into other places? Not look, they. That's why yeah. I have it worse than them. It's like, no, no. Yeah. How, how do we how do we move this forward? What do you think? That's a good point. We gotta we we have to stop that too with looking at you know vets have it worse than 
just people in general. I, you know, I think I hear it a lot, especially with the suicide rate. Um, yeah. You know, I, that concerns me. And I think we can't, um, we, I think we have to have an awareness that these issues are present within our profession. But I think we need to pull away from the blame game as well as the comparison game of we have it worse than you because gosh, we all have it. There's everybody, not just vets are having struggles right oh, yeah. now. I, so I think that's important context. I've gotten in trouble. I've gotten in trouble for this a couple of times, but I'm going to, I sort of keep trying to bring it back up because I, I think it's really important. Um, there's obviously a lot of, of specific stressors uh, for mm-hmm. our profession. And we do have a very stressful job. Uh, the narrative that we are the worst profession for suicide is, is, is that's that's not true. That's not factually not correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean the individual people aren't aren't struggling and suffering. And, you know, yeah. and th- so those things can 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 both be true. I think that we have a bad habit of of playing sort of a a, a martyr game where we say I yeah. I have it worse. Um, and again, yeah. I, I think a lot of people take take sort of their suffering as a badge of commitment you know what i mean it's almost or like yeah. um I, I i give so much that 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 i that that's that's how i see value in myself is that mm-hmm. i as i shoulder this this heavy mm-hmm. burden and I, I just think that that's something we we need to to work back against um and, and the yeah. other, I was saying, oh, go ahead. oh the, the other thing i guess i would just jump in and say real quick is when we talk about mental health is you know occupational stress is a driver of mental health issues, but it is not the driver of mental health issues Mm -hmm. that um, family uh, genetics predisposition or family history, um, uh, relationship stress, chronic illness, chronic pain, like all these other things Mm -hmm. that generally generally mental health issues are are multifactorial and a stressful uh, profession can definitely be a, a factor and a big factor. Mm-hmm. But but again, to break it down to, well, this profession feels this way and this profession feels this way, I, I think that sort of oversimplifies it and it puts so much weight on um, on our job that that mm-hmm. I, I if it, I think you touched on it really nicely earlier on. Right. If you have this idea that I'm not going to leave the profession, but this profession is guaranteed to make me miserable, then mm-hmm. then I have just given away all of my personal agency, yeah. you know, yeah. and my ability to to to. I don't know to to feel like I I can I can fix this or I can get out of it. I essentially have abandoned hope because I say there's no escape from this and I refuse to leave and I go well I I don't I don't know what the path is that's not into darkness uh, from there and so I, I think we set ourselves up into that into that place yeah and I think you bring up a really good point of all the factors with mental health and well being and and that's one thing at least with the study that we've found is that vets are more neurotic there's higher levels of neuroticism in our profession. Then the general population, uh, we have lower levels of extroversion as well. So we have a, in general, more neurotic, more introverted profession. Um, and neuroticism is essentially, you know, a level of worry, like how, how much you're worried about stuff in general. Um, and so we know that neuroticism plays a, can play a factor in mental health and can be predictive of, uh, you know, mental health challenges, especially when put in a stressful environment. So when you're working, you know, so somebody without high levels of neuroticism may work 50, 60, 70 hours a week and be fine. Whereas somebody with neuroticism working that many hours may, you know, predispose them or uh, contribute to mental health challenges, right? So some of these personality factors definitely do play a role. So I think knowing your own kind of personality and what you are able to cope with and you might not be able to pull the 80 hours a week like your mentor is doing in the practice. And you might not be able to do that and still be okay. 
And that's fine. And and you, you might have to set boundaries so that you're not doing that so that you keep yourself well. So I think, again, trying not to, uh, I think you called it kind of like a badge. Um, yeah. You know, we don't have to wear that badge. Right. We I think we can admit that I am not able to work 70 hours a week. I, I, I burnt out at 40 hours a week sure. in veterinary medicine. I experienced severe burnout twice at 40 hours a week in veterinary medicine. So it, it can happen. I think even not working a lot of hours, but I definitely think hours worked combined with personality type of our profession is another, you know, factor in all of this. Yeah. So taking that, one of the things I'm, I'm just really interested in, whether it's in the well-being study or whether it's just your own experience from, from mentor vet, what, what is your take as far as the primary drivers for earlier career vets being more burned out than later career vets? Is it, is it financial? Um, is, is, is it, you know, is it a debt thing? Is it a lack of financial stability thing? Is it, uh, I don't know, a cultural thing? Is it, is it access to social media? You know, I don't know. What, what is it? Yeah. So I think in general, when we're looking at kind of well-being, it, it typically improves over time in the general population. So we know in general, the older you get, the happier you get. Um, so, so there's a little bit of just that factor okay. in general. But I think when we're specifically looking at the veterinary profession, so um, I did a focus group. Uh, it's been about two years ago now, um, pre-COVID, assessing the stressors of our early career veterinarians. And I think a big factor is essentially going from an environment where you have little responsibility as a fourth year vet student. You have a lot of checks all along the way. You're transitioning into this environment now where you have, you're expected to have full responsibility. So suddenly it happens overnight. These are your patients and you are terrified of screwing up. You're just so scared. Like this fear, overwhelming fear of making mistakes. And maybe you don't even make the mistakes, but you're just terrified of screwing up. And I think that's a big factor is this kind of self-sufficiency and self-doubt. I think another factor is conflict. So learning how to navigate conflict or how to navigate these tough ethical situations. And when you've been in practice five, 10 years, you learn as you go. Like yeah. you learn these skills, you get more comfortable with these conversations or how to operate in this gray area. And I think that's a huge stressor for our early career vets is learning how to operate in the gray area because- in, in veterinary school, often we're taught a gold standard approach and not really any in-between options. And so when you get into a practice setting where there's barriers, whether that be financial, your own skills uh, and availability, your staff's availability, uh, you can't always do the gold standard. And maybe it's not always the right thing to do the gold standard. And I, I, so I think a lot of the stressors that they experience is kind of learning how to be uh, a practitioner and not an academic setting mm -hmm. operating in that gray area and feeling good about the care that they're providing. I think that's the really tough part because often they feel like they are a bad vet. They're not doing what was modeled in the academic institution. There's been a, a lot of research around essentially identity developments in the, in the early career and in vet school and veterinarians who have this more diagnosis focused identity where I am only getting joy from my work if I diagnose this pet and provide yeah. the gold standard treatment, right? And so those vets are going to be really unhappy in, in private practice because they aren't going to get to do that very often. Whereas 
there's a, another identity, essentially this challenge focused identity that's more focused on professional autonomy and how I can use my judgment in each individual case to provide the care for this context and this situation and, and adapt and manage challenges and looking at how the how my joy is coming from my work in more than one way than just treating and diagnosing animals. And so, you know, is it helping an owner? You know, they had $100 and I helped them. And wow, we made the pet better. Maybe we didn't do the gold standard thing, but the pet's better now. So that's a that's a huge win. So I think those are the main things I see, at least assuming a leadership role as well, just learning how to delegate, you know, being new in a practice and really learning to navigate the intricacies of the support staff and learning how to delegate. So I think as far as my research goes, particularly looking at the transition of practice, those are some of the main contributors to stress. Yeah, that that that's really insightful. That makes a ton of sense. Let's let's transition now to to some action steps. Uh, I actually one of the things I really liked in this were sort of recommended uh, steps for both the individual and then also the employer. And I, th- I think I think they're both important to hit on. I've got this I've got this real belief that uh, our best approach as uh, to mental health problems in our profession is three tiered. It's at a professional level. It's at a practice level. And it's at an individual level. And so I really, I like to see things broken out into this is what the individual can do. And this is what the employer can do. And, and I feel like those two things go hand in hand. So uh, you, do you want to start to sort of lay down the pieces, uh, whether we do individual or employer first, but you just start to kind of lay down those pieces and then how they interact? Yeah, let's start with individual uh, because I'm a big fan of the individual approaches. I know these get critiqued a lot uh, because I think that I mean, it can feel hard when you're feeling burnt out and somebody's just telling you, like, do more self-care yeah. and your organization's not changing. You know right? what helps me? Um, Breathing. That that helps me. And you go, <laughs> I just, I can't. I can't with you. Yeah. and But I do believe that individuals have such power and teaching individuals how to advocate and speak up about their needs mm-hmm. because often our employers don't even know that there is an issue. And so part of this whole, you know, aspect of self-care stress management is just learning how to speak up about what you're experiencing and what your challenges are. So so essentially on the from the study, um, when we're looking at individual strategies, one of the um, you know, th- this profession is is inherently stressful, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. We know that veterinary medicine um clients aren't magically going to be nicer to us. Like, and the, and the ethical dilemmas are never going to go away. There, there are things that can be reduced as far as stressors go, but even in the most supportive practice environments, if we're not taking care of ourselves, then you're probably still going to burn out. Right. right? So one of the big factors at, uh, you know, promoting well-being and mental health is having a healthy way to manage your stress. So individuals that felt like they had a healthy way to manage their stress were less likely to have, you know, distress or serious psychological distress and mental health challenges. And so just starting to think about, you know, what is your stress management plan? What are you doing to manage your own stress? And I'm not just saying meditation and breathing. It can be helpful. Yeah, that can be great. I I wasn't trying to knock it earlier on, but. Yeah, yeah, it can be helpful for some, but for others, maybe not. But looking at self-care in in a different way of instead, how are you setting boundaries? Like, how are you um, talking with your practice about your needs? How are you advocating for yourself and your team? What are you doing? uh, Because, you know, self-care is not going to work unless you set boundaries to make it happen. Right. And then the self-care comes after that. And, and. I'm an advocate of, you know, individualized self-care. Everybody's self-care is going to look a little different. Um, You know, basic 
exercise, sleep, nutrition, and then, you know, advanced self-care, whatever works best for you. But yeah. just knowing what works to reduce your stress. I know when I'm stressed, like I need to exercise. I need to go for a run. I need to do 10 minutes of meditation. There are things that I know that I need to do when I'm starting to feel overwhelmed and stressed. I know that I have a healthy way to manage my stress. So I think for you know listeners out there, if there's one thing that you can do is, is kind of start to think about what is your stress management plan? What are you going to do when you start feeling stressed and, and do those things? Um, and, and really having, uh, you know, that work-life integration and figuring out what that means for you, uh, I think is also really important. And, um, you know, I, I think the individual strategies can be really helpful and, and talking about, you know, especially the student debt and that can feel, that's the stressor that I didn't min mention before for early career vets that you did. And, and I do think that's a big stressor is, you know, financial health yeah. and graduating with a huge mountain of student debt and how am I going to pay this off? So engaging with a financial planner or financial coach, somebody that can help you work through your personal finances so that it doesn't feel so overwhelming. So it doesn't feel like you're trapped in the profession because you're not. Mm -hmm. um, and really engaging with somebody who can help you get some hope around your financial situation, I think is really, really important as far as individual strategies go. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. What uh, what are the key strategies for employers who want to take care of their people? Yeah, so there are a lot of things that employers can do. Um, I think one of the biggest things that we're talking about now is em employee assistance programs. So, you know, making sure that your employees have access to an EAP. Um, they're not horribly expensive. They're, uh, not. they're really not. And it's just a thing. And, and not even just having one. But making sure that your team knows that you have one too and communicating that because that was one thing from the study is a lot of people didn't even know. Oh, yeah. A lot of people didn't even know that their if their health insurance covered mental health uh, challenges or not. So being able to communicate with your employees, you know, this health insurance does cover these, you know, mental health things or this EAP is available to you and communicating that. Um, I think we also, there's still a stigma in the profession around mental health and well-being. And so I think... Uh, acknowledging that this is an issue, encouraging our team members to address those issues. And again, not making them feel bad if yeah. they have to take off some time from work to, you know, I think uh, a lot of individuals who, um, you know, might be in that space might feel guilty for, you know, taking some time off for themselves to seek mental health help. But if our employers are very supportive and, you know, don't guilt them if they have to take a uh, morning off to go to a therapy appointment, uh, making sure that this is a normal part of our jobs and our careers is keeping our brains healthy too, right? It's just like any other body system. We have to keep ourselves well if we're going to keep doing the work that we need to do. Um, I think that, you know, really thinking about practice environment. So making sure that we're making a, you know, collaborative environment, um, you know, chaotic versus collaborative was an interesting finding. And in, in that, you know, there was more burnout in these chaotic work yeah. environments, which makes sense, right? Totally. So having, um, you know, more of a calm, collaborative environment versus this, you know, chaotic, um, you know, competing environment, I think is, is definitely really important, uh, you know, growing the, the belongingness to the team, team building activities, yeah. Um, developing trust in the organization, candid and open communication, and allowing your, I think, 
and this is not from the study, but flexibility and autonomy is huge. So if your employees feel like they have the flexibility, for example, you want to go to a concert on a Thursday night Mm -hmm. and you don't want to feel bad about leaving work early and you give your employee the flexibility to do that thing that they enjoy doing. Or, you know, it's it's interesting with the mentor vet curriculum, uh, a lot of my mentees, we have meetings, monthly meetings, right? Uh, And they meet with about five to 10 vets every month. And it's once a month and it's in the evening. It's usually at 7.30, 8.30 at night or on a Sunday. And we're very flexible with these times. And yet still, a lot of them are not able to make it to their meeting. They miss their meeting. They work late. They're charting. Make this thing more of a priority. Why can't we include this in the first hour of the day? Block off an hour for your staff to be able to do professional developments. Or, you know, I, I don't know. I think making it a little bit more flexible so our team members don't feel um, bad. And and I think some of this is is self-inflicted too. I mean, yeah. I've been there, right? I've, I've been there. Um, you know, nobody was pressuring me to stay late and see these patients. And I did it because I wanted to help the pets. Mm-hmm. But you can also encourage your employers to take your employees to take care of themselves yeah. too. It makes it easier as an employee to take care of yourself when your employer is encouraging you to. Yeah. That's, that's one of my, my big things that I beat up on, uh, on employers about is, uh, you know, if your wellness strategy is the veterinarian looking at a crying pet owner and setting personal boundaries, then that's a crap wellness strategy. Like that's just a terrible strategy. Uh, you know, protocols that again, you don't have to dictate everything, but protocols that dictate how we're going to end our day, you know, what's going to happen when people come in after a certain time and how we're going to hand them off to an emergency clinic and just have things like that, that are protocols that are not on the ground decisions that, uh, someone has to make. And we know that making those moral and ethical decisions again and again leads to ethical fatigue. And, uh, you know, the more of those things that we can sort of systematize in a way that that protect our people while still serving our values as a practice, I, I think those things are really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And uh, the ethical thing, I think having more open communication about those ethical dilemmas and creating that environment where we are regularly debriefing and talking about this really tough stuff instead of just, you know, ignoring it and, ho- you know, yeah. hoping it goes away, but really starting these open and and i think that speaks to you know candid and open communication among the team and the more that we can openly talk about you know the the shared challenges and struggles and then not make it a ranting fest but a productive you know discussion of these are some of the challenges that we're facing what is one thing that we can do in the next month to address one of these challenges starting small and really you know anytime i'm developing any kind of intervention starting first with what are the specific stressors that your practice is experiencing? And to learn that, you have to ask your team and, you know, get your team together, ask them what ex- challenges they're experiencing and have them identify one or two of their top concerns and then make some type of intervention and just do it and and have the team like provide feedback on what how that's going. And, and it can be really small. But really starting to listen to your team and starting to implement some of the changes that maybe they could see because often our frontline workers know better than we do mm-hmm. what could work right so i really i believe in these local solutions for sure for for our team no i completely agree addy thank you so much for being here where can people learn uh more about a uh, mentor vet where can they learn more about the merck well-being study so our website mentorvet.net uh and you can also follow us on social media so we're at mentor on instagram 
we are at MentorVet1 on Facebook. Uh, you can learn more about the Merck Animal Health Veterinary Wellbeing Study on the Merck Animal Health website. There is a wonderful page that you know includes a PowerPoint of all this you know information. And so I would recommend going there and checking out the PowerPoint and uh, fact-checking, <laughs> fact-checking some of my statistics that I shared today. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I think if you're at a conference, I would definitely, uh, we're, we're definitely speaking a lot on this topic this year. So if you're at a conference, um, see if, if we're talking about this topic to learn more for sure. Awesome. Awesome. I'll put uh, links to the show notes, links in the show notes to all of those things. Uh, guys, take care of yourselves. Have a wonderful week. Addie, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. It was fantastic. <laughs> And that's what we got for you. That's the episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. As always, the kindest thing that you can do is leave an honest review wherever you get your podcast. I really do appreciate it. It helps people find the show. Guys, take care of yourselves. Be well. Talk to you soon. Bye.